You're listening to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. Small business owners and farmers are protesting the green WTO and NAFTA are transnational forms of autocratic governance that support their own. Seattle has never seen anything like it. The following tear gas into the people of Seattle. Seattle has never seen anything like it. The following tear gas into Welcome to Rethinking Trade, where we aim to educate and mobilize folks around a new vision for trade that prioritizes the needs of working people and the planet over those of multinational corporations. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by Lori Wallach. Lori is a longtime fighter for economic justice. She's among the leading experts on trade policy in the United States, and she is the director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. How's it going, Lori? Hello. So I'm sure you're getting the same question that many of us are asking. How has it come to be that we're in this situation where the world's largest economy doesn't seem to have even basic medical supplies like masks and respirators that we need in this time of really extreme crisis? Unfortunately, it's actually a problem we have made for ourselves. This is not an act of God like the virus. This is actually hyper-globalization, something a lot of people have fought So I use the word we advisedly, but our current system of too much globalization promoted by decades of corporate rigged trade agreements has made it much harder for us to limit the damage of this crisis or to respond to it in a way that maximizes the chances for people to stay healthy. And frankly, our economy is taking a bigger hit because of these attenuated supply chains and the way we're too reliant on globalized production. So Lori, what does it mean when economists on TV talk about the supply chains being too brittle or too long or use terms like sole source? What does all this stuff mean? So too long is a euphemism for us having outsourced our domestic manufacturing capacity. In the last 20 years, since the China World Trade Organization Agreement, since NAFTA, we have lost more than 5 million of our manufacturing jobs. That's about a quarter of them in 20 years. We have seen 60,000 manufacturing facilities close. And um, this wasn't just a matter of greedy companies looking to pay workers less, but our trade agreements actually included provisions that incentivized outsourcing production to low-wage countries. Um, If you look back at the big trade fights of the 2000s and 1990s, NAFTA, the China permanent normal trade relations fight in 2000, what's happened was, was exactly what opponents of those trade policies feared. So too long means, um, for instance, for the N95 masks that are essential for healthcare workers to stay safe, there are a lot of them are made in China, and it would normally take 65 days from the time an order is put in to have that product delivered in the U.S. Because it has to be made there, then it has to be packaged, it's put typically on a ship, it goes by ocean, then it has to go through customs. So 65 days to get something urgently needed, which we just don't make enough domestically. Brittle means it's too easy to break a supply chain. A supply chain just means the way that different 
inputs, parts that we need to make something, or for that matter, a supply chain being it all comes from one place, um, it's too easy for some piece of it to, to come apart. So for instance, just one part in one country is no longer being produced because, for instance, China had the coronavirus crisis earlier, shut down a lot of factories. And here's an example that is very concrete. The company that makes Purell, the hand sanitizer, it sources a particular spring that makes the stuff squirt out in its dispensers in China. They chose that because it's the cheapest place to have it made. You could have made those in the U.S. It was one source that got all those springs from. So um, when those springs were not being produced at the same volume, they could make the Purell, but they didn't have the piece to make the Purell container so people could get a final usable bottle of Purell. When you look, for instance, um, at what's brittle, you look back like even in 2003, when the SARS epidemic hit, China accounted for about 4% of global output of goods at that point. And now it's over four times as much. Some people say 20%, at least 16% at the low end. So that means whatever is happening in China in January, when the pandemic first hit there, affects the entire world as far as what we even can produce here. Because these supply chains are so brittle, we're relying on stuff that's made someplace else. And sole source means all the productions in one place. China often, but not exclusively. So when there's a problem, there's no redundancy. And again, this is not a surprise. We saw this during the SARS epidemic, you know, 17 years ago when a particular kind of computer chip was not being made in Malaysia, when Malaysia was hard hit by SARS. And a bunch of production manufacturing all around the world shut down because without that one particular part that was only being produced there, it couldn't go on. Now, sole source is in part because of the decisions companies have made to cut, to cut costs, to lay off people in other countries that used to make those things. And it's not just all trade, because it's also an antitrust, a monopoly, a, a corporate concentration issue. And right now, there's one really you know, clean example of that that's kind of scary is in the medical supply chain. So there's been an epidemic of the big guys buying up all around the world, smaller manufacturers of you know, everything, ventilators, masks, et cetera. A lot of them are companies that are incorporated in the U.S. or in Europe. A lot of them have their production in China. But the thing is, when they buy up the competition, they're number one, trying to get rid of the competitions. So they can lock the prices. But also, it means there's no redundant manufacturing because how they're making their profits go up is if there used to be three factories that made something, they buy up the competitors, shut down the two competing factories. Maybe they make the supply line to make the new brand that they um, that they purchased when they shut when they bought the company they shut down. Maybe they add some workers, but now it's all being produced in one place. Even it's being produced in different names of brands that these big companies bought up. So that's a that is a really serious problem. And even when it's not sole source, under our current globalized production system, it's way too concentrated. So like here's just one example. The masks everyone is now looking for, the, you know, not the fancy ones, not the N95s, the stuff we should just all have when we go out and about. 
for our essential stuff. So before before this crisis, like in December, if you put December data, China made 50%. One country, 50% of the supply. And not surprisingly, when China had the crisis hit first, they stopped exporting the stuff. So as of January, 50% of the supply was simply shut down. They're only starting to begin to share what they can produce. But in January, China also bought up the supply worldwide. They bought up 56 million units. Now, to put in this perspective, China was able at that point to produce, at, at having 50% of global capacity, they could do 10 million per day. And they built up and they, they bought another 56 million. Now, they then basically made production of masks mandatory. The government just instructed companies. So they have increased their production 12 times. They're now making 115 million masks a day. But China has only just started with very limited scale exporting any of it. And, you know, it's not just Chinese owned companies. There's a Canadian firm, Medicare, that's... um, in Shanghai, and as of last week, there are newspaper stories that they weren't being allowed to export things that they made because the government basically said if any medical supply being made here is being kept here. So the the you know the absence of masks, you you can't buy one for love or money in the U.S. right now, is both because we're not making enough of them domestically, and um, when there is a big lag in demand. You can expect a country that can make them to hold on to them, to be accountable to their own people. And, you know, that's that's something that's happening around the world. There's been a lot of hoopla about, oh, my goodness, countries are are holding on to these supplies. They're banning exports of medical goods. Um, that is, you know, that is that is something Germany and France have done. Korea, Taiwan, India. It's being attacked as if it's some horrible criminal trade violation. But if you think about it practically, you think about like what Germany is doing. Germany, they make a lot of ventilators there. Sweden, the, the, the big ventilator companies are from Sweden, Netherlands, the US and Germany. And the, the ventilators that they ultimately set to Italy, they waited 12 hours because under their law, you basically have to do a needs test. So you apply, you normally would just export it, but they have a temporary emergency COVID measure where you have to basically tell the equivalent of their centers for disease control, hey, we would like to export X number of ventilators to Italy. Can we have an authorization? And that agency checks to make sure that there isn't immediate demand in Germany, and then they approve it and the ventilators go out the door. So that that is more or less democratic accountability of a government being responsive to the needs of their own people. The hysteria is misdirected as, as if it's like a trade violation. The problem is we don't have enough demand. It's not like Germany was saying, ha we're going to sit on this until Italy is desperate and willing to pay two times as much. We have demand for, you know, in the world, let's just say 100 ventilators. And right now, world capacity is 60 ventilators. And in part, that's because of all this consolidation and 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 um, removal of excess capacity, not excess as it turns out. And we're trying to, you know, gear up to make up the difference. But if there's 60 
ventilators available and a hundred of them are needed and you are a country that makes the ventilators, it's not really a shocker that you keep the five or whatever it is that you need before you send out the ones that others want. So I think all of this is a brutal lesson, this crisis of certainly why a continental sized country like the United States with the natural resources to be able to manufacture anything without having to rely on these attenuated, brittle supply chains should not have gutted its manufacturing capacity and looking forward needs to learn from this lesson and start to bring back capacity for certain essential goods home. Now, obviously that's a super important thing as we're seeing for resilience to be able to take care of core needs but it has some great benefits in the 5 million manufacturing workers who are a chunk of the 60 plus percent of Americans who don't have college degrees largely, who lost good paying jobs, could put their skills to a job that pays a middle-class wage, which would have the corollary benefit of fighting income inequality. And it would make us much safer and more resilient in the face of this kind of a medical crisis or other crises. And are those changes going to happen or what needs to happen to bring those kinds of changes about, in your opinion? So that's the perfect question. That's part of what we're going to be thinking about and talking with everybody about on Rethink Trade and need lots of folks thinking and best input. But what I'll say is there are two things that are happening. One, yes, a lot of people who cheered on, profited from, or just ignored the hollowing out of U.S. manufacturing capacity are waking up to the perils. And I can't tell you how many people who have in the past said, you know, why are you so worried about this trade stuff, are emailing me, sending me Facebook messages saying, oh, my Lord, I get it now. But that is not enough to make the change in policy. We're all going to have to fight for it. And we'll be sharing a lot about what that's going to look like because the corporations that have reaped the windfall profits of this current untenable, ultra-globalized system are doubling down. If you think about the concept of crisis capitalism, there's a crisis. Let's see what outrageous things we can grab as companies that we never would have gotten away with if people were paying attention. They're trying to get more and more. And, you know, they're right now about to get a waiver of all of tariffs, not on medical supplies, but like on everything, which is to say wedding dresses and designer clothes, pickup trucks, claiming that somehow that's going to help deal with the crisis or that's somehow going to help the economy. The White House is considering doing this, which of course totally conflicts with Trump's alleged trade policies. And even worse, it's gonna gut the industries that now remain the manufacturing capacity, the ones that have any tariffs, textiles and autos, which are the very ones right now trying to retool to make the ventilators and the masks. The textile companies have tooled up for masks. The auto companies are trying to make ventilators. And it's, you know, it's an outrageous thing. They're even considering this. And at the same time, you know, the corporations are doing a big PR attack on how, oh, the tariffs that are in place from 
to discipline against China's trade violations. They're making it impossible to get medical supplies. And I think the one thing I want to just end with, which is maybe the only competent thing that this administration has done in the face of this crisis, where everything else they've done has made it worse, from ignoring the crisis, to then downplaying the crisis, to then not preparing for two months, then to not controlling production to get the stuff we need, such as protection for our medical workers, or now that there is some production and imports, not distributing it. All of that is wrong. It's a disaster. The one good thing they have done is the U.S. Trade Representative's office a month ago went with a fine-toothed comb through the trade schedules and got rid of all penalty tariffs on any medical product. And when they say medical product, I've looked at the list. It's really broad. So that is the only competent response yet to listen to television news or read a newspaper and all the screaming about it. You'd think that there were 200% tariffs on all these goods. Folks, the problem is not that we have protectionism on our trade front. The problem is we have not protected our basic needs and our manufacturing capacity so that we can have the benefits of expanded trade. Yes, we're not talking about high tariffs on everything. What we're talking about is having a plan and some policies that make sure that we actually can make the things or get the things we need in a crisis like this. Rethinking Trade is produced by Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, where we don't just talk about trade policy, we fight to change it. Visit RethinkTrade.org today to get involved in our campaigns and help us fight for global economic justice. Thanks for listening.